If we haven't met yet, my name's Cameron. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here. Our usual guy that's getting in trouble up here, Josh, is over teaching at Bridgetown tonight, and he will be back next week. So tonight, I was given a freebie, which is exciting. Um, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. Last week, we wrapped up working through our way through a series called Discovering Your Identity and Calling. And before we get back to Matthew, which will be next week, uh, I want to work through Exodus chapter 3. It's something that's actually been kind of uh, percolating in my mind for the last year or so, something that I was just waiting for an opportunity to teach, and here we are. So you guys get, it's like a mad scientist, like baking in his lab, and now it's here. Hopefully it's not Frankenstein, because that would be a bummer. Um, Okay, so I feel uh, kind of compelled to encourage you guys with something as we continue working out our identity and calling and face the inevitable implications that arise from it. It's, it's the kinds of things that I would love to encourage you with uh, as we sit over coffee one-on-one. Um, but there's two advantages of doing it tonight. One is that I get to do it with like, uh, I don't know, like 70 or 80 people all at once. And there is coffee, so go grab some in the back if you haven't already, please. Um, and the second advantage is, um, you know, usually it's looked down upon when you meet with somebody to, like, preach at them. Um, but you guys are here on a Sunday night. This is what you expect right now. So I get to actually preach uh, to you, and I'm, I'm really excited. So Exodus chapter 3, let's get started reading in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that, that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to, to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. 
And we'll stop there. Uh, Last week, Josh taught on the life and calling of Joseph, the dream of Joseph, and the winding uh, road over decades it took to fulfill his God-given dream. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to the podcast, because the teaching's the teaching is actually really um, uh, helpful and challenging, and, and for me at least, it was, it was actually like inspiring. So go back and listen to it if you weren't here last week. Tonight, I want to look at the calling of Moses we just read in chapter 3 of Exodus and how God's identity impacts Moses' calling, and I will argue all of our individual callings as well. Let's work through this section of scripture line by line and tease out some implications for us. We're going to be tearing through a good portion of scripture tonight. So uh, for the next 15 minutes or so, stick with me and it will be worth it in the end. I guarantee it. If not, you can have a refund, okay? You guys ready? <laughs> Look down and read verse 1 with me. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. If you remember from last week, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. And after a couple of decades of slavery and imprisonment, in a single moment, through God's power, he was made second in command of all of Egypt for interpreting a, a Pharaoh's dream about an upcoming famine and then formulating a plan to save the entire region. He succeeded, and his, flan- his family was reconciled to him in the process and joined him in Egypt. They were given land as shepherds, and it seemed like the story had uh, kind of ended happily ever after. But actually, turn over to Exodus chapter 1, if you're following along in your Bibles, just a couple chapters to the left, because it tells us where the story went after Joseph. So let's start reading in verse 6. So now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So it seems like things are going uh, pretty well, but let's keep reading. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Moses was a Hebrew baby, protected by his family against this decree for the ethnic cleansing of the Israelites. If you're familiar with this story, especially the kid's story, you know that baby Moses was put in a basket and floated down the Nile River, and it's a nice one until you realize he was going to get killed if he didn't. So he was in the basket and in the river because of that. He was actually found by a daughter of the Pharaoh and was adopted into the family, which gave him the best upbringing Egypt could offer. But he was still a Hebrew through and through. After growing up in the Egyptian royal family as a young man, uh, there was an occasion when he saw a fellow Hebrew being beaten by an Egyptian slave master, and he killed the Egyptian. 
In the aftermath, he was forced to flee from the justice of Pharaoh into the desert wilderness and ended up marrying into a, a tribe of nomadic shepherds. And he assumed this life for decades. Now that we have the backstory, let's continue on in Exodus chapter 3. Look down at verse 2. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in, in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? I read in one of the commentaries I was reading that it's actually not uncommon for bushes to uh, burst into flames randomly in this part of the world, uh, which I assume is because it's hot, which is crazy. Um, don't ever go to that part of the world, I guess. Uh, but Moses noticed this bush isn't being consumed by fire, which is a bit strange, so let's keep reading. Verse 4, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Over 400 years has, have passed since the events involving Joseph. And we have no recorded revelation of God in, in this time, a sort of a biblical silence in that period. And then God shows up one day in a burning bush to a shepherd to Moses, who has run away from his people and their oppression. God makes it uh, very clear that this is an important moment. God is looking for this Moses. Uh, repeating his name in the Hebrew is kind of like when I, I think my mom would like say loudly, Cameron Michael, maybe not so stern, but kind of like that, and that would make me like perk up, and I'd be like, oh man, and in that moment, I knew I ne either needed to go find her or run away. Um, but God's not looking for just any shepherd, not any Moses, but, but this Moses. God tells Moses to take off his shoes because this place is holy. This isn't a dream or an image in his mind. There is a physical reality to God meeting Moses in that place. And it's really important. One commentator says, the removal of sandals was and still is in the east a sign of humility and reverence in the presence of the Holy One. It was a way of excluding the dust and dirt of the world, but it also took away personal comfort and convenience and brought the person mo more closely in contact with the earth. God is meeting with Moses and telling him in that moment and place, in time, it needs to be treated differently. So let's keep reading in verse 6. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God had promised Moses' ancestor Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars and that he would have a specific place, what was known as the land of Canaan. This promise was passed down to Abraham's son Isaac and then to his son Jacob, who was the father of Joseph. God is identifying himself with the God who promised descendants and land. There are certainly now many descendants, as we read in chapter 1, but still no land, not by a long shot. The descendants are trapped in a foreign land by a powerful nation. Instead of getting closer to fulfilling the promise of land over the last 400 years, it seems to be sl slipping further and further from the realm of possibilities. So what does God want with Moses. Look down at verse 7. 
Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. There are multitudes of descendants fulfilling one promise to Abraham, and now God wants to act to bring those descendants to the land to promise them in order to fulfill the other promise to Abraham. And we need to make sure we don't miss something in the text. God says that he sees the people's misery, he hears their cries, and he is concerned. God is personally aware of Israel's sufferings. And this is huge for people who who do not worship their God through idols. They have no physical representation for their God. And yet he decisively says he is very aware of what is going on and is personally responding to it. So he says, I have come down to rescue them. God himself has come down to rescue Israel. He has come to bring them out of slavery. He is going to lead them to the promised land. So why is he telling Moses? Look at verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Did did God just pull a bait and switch on Moses? Was he like, yeah, you're into this? Yeah, I'm coming. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna rescue you. Okay, yeah, now you go and do it. Um, I'm sure Moses was into the idea of God coming down personally to lead the people, but then he says, you're the guy, Moses. He was going to lead them out to the promised land. God himself was going to do it, and now Moses has to go and do it. Which, uh, understand, this is an, an utterly impossible thing for him to accomplish. At this time, Israel is a nation of slaves with no military, no economy, no homeland, no government, no leader. Egypt at this time is the world superpower. It's even more daunting of a task than it would have been leading all the African-American slaves out of the South to freedom. The Confederate States were not a superpower. Egypt in the time of Moses is. I mean, that is an impossible job. Look at Moses' response in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Uh, that's, that's a fair question. Sure, Moses was trained up by the Egyptians, but that was decades ago. He is a simple shepherd now. He's not some military commander or charismatic leader. He is just a shepherd. God would need to choose the cream of the crop for a job like this, the best of the best, the smartest, the most charismatic, the most experienced human being in the world for this job, and it would still be a next-to-impossible task. But God chooses an old nomadic shepherd. God's response to Moses' question in verse 12 is gold. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. God says nothing about Moses' natural abilities or gifts as to why he is chosen. This isn't a moment where like, God takes on his coaching role and is like, all right, team, we can do this. I believe in you. We've practiced really hard. You're actually really good. Let's just go, go and get them. He, he instead, like, 
completely ignores Moses' question. He's like, don't worry about your stuff. And he instead of replies, he will be with Moses, which is nice and all. That, that's a nice thought, God. But remember, God doesn't have a physical embodiment. There's nothing to show that God is with Moses. So what proof is God going to give Moses that he is with him? Success. Literally. God is saying, when you are successful, you will know I am with you. When the peoples are out of Egypt, not concerned about being chased by the Egyptian military or anything like that, when they are worshiping God at that very moment, that's the proof that God is with Moses. God is inviting Moses to obey, to trust, and see the proof in the success. Moses isn't completely on board yet, though, so he asks another question. Look down at verse 13. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So Moses asks a fair question again. Essentially, he's saying, even if I'm convinced you're with me, I have to then convince an entire nation of that as well. How? And and Moses is wise in predicting that Israelite elders would ask what God's name is. A name to Moses and the Israelites is something that reveals a person's character. For the Israelites, God had titles like El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. There is El Elyon, which means God Most High, or El Roy, which means the God who sees. And these titles tell something about who God is. They are based on the way he interacts with people. For Moses to come to the Israelites and say, God is with me, so follow me out of slavery, is outside the established character of God to the Israelites. If he is really with Moses and is acting in a new way, then Moses must have a new revelation about who God is. So essentially, Moses is asking God to tell him what to call him based on this new way God wants to act. And God tells him a new name. Look down at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. This is the first time God reveals his proper name in the Bible. Before people knew him by titles, now they know his name. And let's dive into the Hebrew a little bit. Um, This could get just a tad dense for the next few minutes, but it's important, so stick with me, please. What we translate into English, I am who I am, is the Hebrew, Echia Asher Echia. The Hebrew phrase is actually uh, pretty difficult to translate, precisely for a few reasons that we do not need to get into tonight. But as I was reading through commentaries on this section of scripture, these are all the ways it was able to be translated. I am who I am. I am who I was. I was who I am. I will be who I am. I was who I will be. Whatever I am, I will be. What I was will be. So seven ways, at least, to be translated. The crazy thing is, I think they're all correct to some degree. They all agree upon two things behind the meaning of the Hebrew. Number one, God exists. And not only that he exists, but his existence has no beginning and no end. He just is. He he has been and he will be. But more than just existence, it points to God's consistency. 
far from being capricious and moody. His character and how he acts is who he has been, who he is in every single moment, and who he will be. And you can trust that. It's part of God's nature. Think of the implications for Moses and the Israelites to hear this. This new act of God to bring Israel out of slavery in Egypt to the promised land is not actually a new thing about God. It is revealing to the Israelites who God has always been and who he will always be. God's name is forever tied to his act to redeem an entire nation out of slavery. This is who God is. Now I need to clarify something further about the Hebrew. Ehe Asher Ehe is God's name. In verse 14, though, God shortens it himself to Ehye, or I am. Now, if you've been around the church for a while, you you will have heard God's name pronounced as Yahweh instead of Ehye. The leading theory behind this shift actually makes a ton of sense, and it's quite simple. It is awkward to refer to your God as I am. If somebody asks you, who is your God, and you say, I am, there can be a lot of misconceptions about what's going on. It's kind of like a, a holy version of Abbott and Costello's comedy bit, who's on first. Like two people thought that was funny. All right, uh, that's okay. YouTube it. It's great. So they referred to God as he is or Yahweh instead of I am or Ehye. Now, the name of Yahweh is absent in the Bible, or so it appears at first glance. In all actuality, the Old Testament uses the name of Yahweh around 6,800 times, but appears as all capitals L-O-R-D. This was done by Jewish scribes as a way to treat Yahweh's name with the utmost reverence. In order to do so, they systematically replaced the name of Yahweh with the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. The problem is that, is that Adonai is a title, not a name. It doesn't communicate Yahweh's character the way his name does. So feel free, anytime you see uh, the word, all caps, L-O-R-D, in your Bible, read Yahweh instead of Lord. Yahweh wants to be called by his name. He wants to be remembered by this name. And that's because it communicates his character as Redeemer. Now, for our purposes tonight, I want to take a step back and highlight a couple implications for us. So, uh, remember in the text when God said he was coming down to lead Israel out of slavery and into the promised land. And remember, um, he, he then said, so I'm sending you, Moses. It seems odd at first, but as you look through the story of the scriptures, this is how God operates time and time again. Probably the most striking parallel of this is found at the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, At the end of it, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus is vindicated as the king of the world. He is Yahweh in the flesh and blood, come down to save the world. And so he sends his disciples out to the world at large to spread this good news and invite people to follow him. And Jesus promises to be with his disciples to the very end. Much like the task of Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery, Jesus gives this nearly impossible commission to his disciples to take the good news to the entire world. 
They are to offer freedom to those enslaved to sin. They are to invite people into the kingdom of God. And Jesus does the heavy lifting of redemption, turning an impossible commission into success. He is who he is. It's important for us to understand when it comes to calling and vocation for us that what you are called to is not primarily for your own flourishing or satisfaction or to have a piece of the good life. Those things uh, can often naturally flow in seasons from pressing into your calling and vocation, but they are not the reason you are called. They are not the end reason for your vocation. If your calling is to be a parent, your satisfaction isn't ultimately found in being a parent. If your calling is to be a writer, your satisfaction, you know, the good life, isn't found in, in being a writer. Remember from our Identity and Calling series, everyone has an innate sense of their need for God. And in that need, there's an aspect that yearns to partner with God. You think Genesis chapter 1 and the cultural mandate. He has gifted you and wired you in a specific way. And that yearning to partner with God will work out in a way that is unique to you. Now, a problem that can be experienced with calling and vocation can often be that we think the product of our partnership with God will be what satisfies us. So the the kids or the book that is written, whatever it is, and, and then when the kids are grown or the book is read and then sits dusty on a shelf, what are you left with? Maybe memories? True satisfaction in calling and vocation is not ultimately found in the outworking or the final product. It is found in partnering with God in his story of redemption. When you are being a parent, raising your children to be faithful disciples of Jesus, or when you write a book, you are partnering with Yahweh. You are partnering with him in your own own way in his story of redemption because he is who he is. He is still at work to redeem the world and he will ultimately will. He has given us the honor and the privilege of bringing snapshots of the freedom from sin and evil into reality here and now. Whatever your vocation is, the way you carry it out, what you produce should ooze the reality of Yahweh's character of redemption. And that will look wildly different to different people and callings, but it is still the theme that ties together all of our callings and vocations. To see our calling and vocation as firstly the partnering with Yahweh in his plan of redemption is incredibly vital. God has come down in response to the suffering and slavery of humanity, but he has sent you and I to partner with him in, in order to do something about it. Which leads me to my next point. Did you notice uh, Moses' response to Yahweh when he's told Yahweh is sending him to lead the people? He responds with, who am I? This has two things that we want to draw out. Uh, Before Moses went into exile out in the wilderness, he was a young, promising, highly educated man who saw his fellow Hebrew people suffering and oppressed. He personally witnessed injustice and intervened to put an end to it and in the process killed an Egyptian slave master. You know, the next day, uh, the, the story goes, he, he saw two Hebrew slaves fighting amongst themselves, and he went to put a stop to that as well. And do you know what they said to him when he tried to do so? They said, who made you ruler and judge over us? And the answer was, nobody. And what's more, 
in his attempt to see justice, he actually committed an injustice. He murdered the slave master. Nobody asked him to. He just seemed to kind of be a young, zealous, idealistic guy who took matters into his own hands, and it backfired in huge ways. And so he ran. And much like the story last week of Joseph, the time Moses spent in the wilderness is critical. He spends decades as a nomadic shepherd. No need for that advanced degree from the finest of of Egyptian schools, no nation to lead out of slavery, just sheep in the wilderness. And in the process, it seems that his idealism, his youthful pride and arrogance are strangled to death. Now given an opportunity to lead his people out of Egypt in partnership with the living God, he can only see what he is not. You know, part of the reason we paired the concepts of identity and calling is when you work through the process of your identity, you certainly get to see the way you are gifted and wired, but you are also faced with the reality of who you are not. Going through this process of uh, uh, discovering who you are not is vital to your calling. It is an important part of your identity. It shows you how your calling and vocation is not to be carried out. You know, um, when I started at uh, Van City, it's been almost two years ago. Doesn't time fly? This is crazy. Um, So it's been almost two years ago that I started at Van City um, in the role of, of communities. And you know what we called the position? It didn't actually have a a working title, like job description. We called it um, the Gerald position. Uh, Because there's this guy down at Bridgetown Church who uh, we planted out of, and he's the communities guy. Gerald is like this well-known dude. He's uh, a really big personality, outgoing. Everybody loves him. And it's awesome. I I love the guy. He is an amazing dude. And so I got this job, and we literally called it the Gerald position for months and months. Um, And you know what's interesting is over the last two years, um, I've actually had to try to unwork um, that sort of stigma when it comes to doing my role. Because I'm not Gerald. Gerald is Gerald, and he's amazing at being Gerald. I'm not Gerald. And when in seasons I've tried to be like him, it is death to me. I'm not Mr. Outgoing. I'm like right in the middle of introvert, extrovert. I get tired around people. If you guys, you guys did the Enneagram with the, um, with the uh, Identity and Calling series, and I'm a nine, and you know what they say about nines? They have the lowest amount of en- energy out of all of the numbers on the Enneagram. And it's true. I get tired really easily. And so when I'm trying to be like this guy who's super outgoing, has tons of energy, um, it is... It's just exhausting. And so Jesus uh, has had to show me uh, many times what I am not so that I can uh, work and, and press into this vocation as I should, as, as God has wired me and, and gifted me. This is a vital process, discovering what you are not. Moses was not the type of charismatic, experienced, strong leader Israel needed in order for them to have the smallest of chances to escape slavery. He seems to have been pretty good, a pretty good shepherd instead. But what God didn't want was some young, idealistic, charismatic leader to take the charge, put the people on his back, and be the rescuer. He wanted a shepherd. He wanted somebody who was good, no doubt, 
but not the kind of person you or I would have chosen for the job. But it's Yahweh. He is who he is. Paul wrote this to a church in the city of Corinth some 1,500 years after the events of Moses. He wrote to them. I'll just read it from the thing. All right, perfect. Brothers and sisters, I think of, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God is who he is. Yahweh isn't looking to a person's pedigree. The nature of the partnership with Yahweh in his plan of redemption is such that when success is achieved by Moses or uh, by you or by me, when Moses reaches the mountain with the people, it is proof that Yahweh was with him. Not that Moses had the gumption or the ability to save the nation himself, but that he partnered with Yahweh, allowing him to do the heavy lifting while remaining always faithful to Yahweh and trusting him to do what he said he would do. And I think there are some people here tonight who have an idea of what Yahweh is calling them to. And it seems terrifying or overwhelming or impossible. And so you've despaired. You've asked, who am I? I'm not able to do this. There's got to be someone smarter or wiser or more skilled to do it. I'm not able to do it. And the assumption is that somebody more qualified would be able to have success, but not you. This line of reasoning is uh, understandable. Honestly, uh, you probably aren't able to do what God is calling you to. When you say, I am not, it's true. I'm sorry. But, listen to me very carefully, but you are in good company. Because Moses was out of his league as well. Remember what Yahweh's name is, I am. You are not able to do it, but you believe in a God whose name is I am. He wants to do something through you and with you that you couldn't do on your own. You you are not able, but he is. Some of you need to hear that tonight, and yet it's true for all of us. Whatever you feel your calling or is or whatever you're working towards for your vocation, from the most manageable of things to the most daunting and complex, Yahweh is the one that you partner with in order to make it happen. Some of the most dangerous callings and vocations are the ones we assume that we can do on our own. Remember, the partnership is the key, not the product. And when we are faithful to do this, God is faithful to do greater things than we could have ever done on our own. Maybe they're glamorous and and glorious and things that people will take note of and write reviews about and post about on Instagram and social media, whatever it is. Or maybe they are quiet and humble things that will probably never be celebrated. Either way, Yahweh is calling you to partner with him in his plan for redemption. For Moses, the leading of the nation out of slavery and to the mountain to praise God actually happened. He succeeded. Along the way, Yahweh revealed himself to Moses and Israel in just astounding ways. And praising God at the mountain wasn't actually the end of Moses' calling. 
it was like the, the halfway point. His journey covered so much more, so many more ups and downs, but yet Yahweh did so much more than what Moses could have predicted. Paul wrote this to the church in Ephesus. He said, now, all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than what we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in King Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. He is who he is. Let's pray.